Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You're listening to the Tudor's Dynasty podcast with Rebecca Larson. When I think about topics that I've been longing to do, the Dudleys have been at the top of my list for quite some time. And, well, that's because I was patiently waiting for today's guest to publish her new book, The House of Dudley, The Fall of England's Most Scandalous Family. Dr. Joanne Paul, welcome. Thank you so much for having me on. This is such a privilege. My interest in the Dudleys obviously comes from John Dudley's close connection with the Seymours, which I've learned goes back to the first half of Henry VIII's reign and Edward Seymour. Can you explain how John Dudley and Edward Seymour met and how long they knew one another? This was in many ways one of the, I, I guess, sort of not quite discoveries of, of this book, but but for me, it was something that went far deeper than I had previously realized, because I think we view the relationship between Edward Seymour and John Dudley through the lens of what happens much, much later and and their rivalry uh, in in the reign of of Edward VI. But they had a very, very long uh, friendship. They met uh, on, well, the first record we have of them being in the same place at the same time, they may have met um, before that, is uh, when they're on the battlefields of France in the early 1520s under uh, the command of uh, Charles Brandon. And they're knighted uh, a few days apart. And from there, we start to see uh, a relationship and and a friendship growing. They start to uh, do property deals together, take the same sides in various transactions and um, politically and religiously as well. We start to see a connection between uh, the two families as they as they grow. And so when Henry VIII dies, uh, it's very, very clear to all of those watching and observing and and recording um, that it's going to be not just Edward Seymour who sort of has the primacy but this this regime that involves the pair of them very much and we can see that in that famous um, painting of Edward VI uh, and and, uh, Henry VIII on his deathbed pointing to his son next to Edward VI standing next to him is Edward Seymour but next to him the first man sort of sat kneeling next to Edward Seymour is John Dudley. Um, So it is very much the pair of them. One thing that I really took from your book was maybe how competitive John Dudley was with Edward Seymour because Edward seemed to continually rise ahead of him. Do you think there was some jealousy there? Oh, that's such a fascinating question. Um, I mean, I always saw it as uh, as lacking that sort of that sort of jealousy and, and competition, but it, it absolutely could have. I mean, I guess from Dudley's point of view, um, and this is something I, I sort of put in in the book. There was 
there wouldn't really be an expectation that he would rise to the level of, of Edward Seymour. I mean, after all, Edward Seymour was um, uncle to the heir and, and then to the king, whereas John Dudley was, was the, the son of an executed traitor. Um, so, so why would he rise that far? And, and I think for the majority of their friendship, which, as I said, stretches across decades, I, I, I don't see that sort of competition. Um, John is continually one step behind Seymour in, in promotion. As Seymour leaves a position and moves to a higher one, John seems to take that position, um, which suggests a, a friendship between them that, that Seymour was, was recommending him. And we have some letters where Seymour is recommending Dudley. Um, so I, I don't think that that necessarily was the case for mu much of their friendship. Of course, there is a suggestion as we move towards the end of the reign of Henry VIII and into the reign of Edward VI that there might start to be a rivalry. Um, and some of the ambassadors, for instance, suggest that their personalities wouldn't mesh very well, that there, there would be conflict that, that would come from, from their two different, very different personalities. Um, but even, even when they do clash and even when Seymour falls the first time, John wants I think to to rehabilitate him to bring him back in he has every opportunity to have him executed to take his his place um and in fact defends him against those um who would see him executed um so I think it's only much much later that we have a real competitive rivalry between the two and actually I think it's a wonderful really interesting story of this long long really loyal friendship that exists before it. I think you and I could have a three hour long podcast where we just talk about the Seymours and the Dudleys. <laughs> Maybe we should. <laughs> it's just so fascinating to me, but I don't want to dwell on that specific part of it for too long because I really want to go back to um, Edmund Dudley because you had mentioned John's father had been executed and that was something that he just kind of lived with his entire life. So maybe can we start with a bit of backstory on Edmund so that the listeners get an understanding of who he really was? Because we didn't, I didn't really know before this book. So where did he come from and how did he earn his position with Henry VII? I think it, it, it's such a good point. Um, we tend to think about Epson and Dudley and, you know, they're just these sort of conniving uh, ministers of, of a um, very uh, miserly Henry VII, and we, we, we don't actually ask many questions about who, who they, they were. I mean, I, I certainly didn't. Um, Edmund was the eldest son of a younger son of a baron, so had some position. You know, he was a gentleman, but not much beyond that. He'd been born in probably 1462, so, you know, sort of mid, mid to late 15th century, had uh, therefore seen much of the Wars of the Roses. Um, I talk about uh, his grandfather in particular switching sides um, periodically. So there's a suggestion that Edmund may have learned from that a little bit about how to be sort of uh, politique. And he trained in the law. He seemed to have been fairly well known in particular in uh, fairly <laughs> obscure laws to do with the king's prerogative, which may have seemed largely academic to those around him, but of course ended up being uh, very, very important to his rise later on. Um, and he'd held uh, various positions, um, both uh, in, in the county, largely in Sussex, 
um, as well as in London. Um, but there was nothing about his trajectory that suggested he would become as important to history as, of course, we know he was. Uh, the real shift happens um, in about 1504, or, or shortly before that, when um, Henry VII uh, is, is getting older. Um, he's, he's lost Arthur, his eldest son. He's lost his wife. Um, it's looking like his, his heir. Uh, he will only have the one uh, heir, really, one, one son um, in Henry, later Henry VIII, um, and is starting to get a bit... Uh, anxious, paranoid about the precarity of, of that position. Um, he's also at this point losing some of his most trusted advisors, uh, perhaps most importantly, uh, Reginald Bray. Um, and Bray has some connections uh, with uh, Edmund's family, his father. And so it's it seems probable that um, Bray suggests Edmund Dudley to Henry VII as someone who could be helpful to him. Um, and so we see uh, Edmund turning down uh, a uh, position that, that would have made sense for his previous trajectory, instead becoming um, Speaker of the House um, and starting to work very closely uh, with Henry VII and opening his, his account book in late 1504. Uh, and from that point is really tasked with um, collecting money for the king. Correct me if I'm wrong, but he really seemed kind of surprised by his downfall. Is that a fair statement? Oh, I think I think that is a very fair statement and, and a, a very perceptive one. Um, I think he was shocked. I think what we, we, we actually get a lot of shock from the records of, of Edmund Dudley that we, we have. Um, he, he seems shocked when people are questioning him, shocked especially when they're questioning either the king's will or his execution of the king's will. There's this sort of indignation that we get from him at various points when, when people are, are suggesting that he's, he's not acting in accordance with what the king would want. And yes, he, he, he does seem surprised uh, that, perhaps not that they come for him. I mean, I think he knew he had enemies, but that they're so successful in their attempt to bring him down. Um, and in some ways that seems entirely fair. I mean, the, the, what he's accused of is completely ridiculous. Like they do entirely make it up. Um, and uh, they do choose him and Epsom um, as the scapegoats for the previous reign. Um, when, you know, it really, it could have been, it could have been anybody. It's just, they were the most unpopular. Um, and they had the fewest connections um, to protect them. But I, I, I think I think he he's someone who right is right. The king's will is the king's will, um, and and that's just it. I think he he was a bit black and white about things. He's also someone I think who was you get a real sense of panic from him. Uh, I think he really wanted a way out once he felt trapped. And, and we see that in the letters, you know, he writes to Andrew Windsor, uh, his former brother-in-law, uh, requesting that people be bribed within the court to uh, support him and, and to, to free him. Um, he plans an escape from the tower, which when I read that in um, one of the copies of his will, I, I was just flabbergasted. I had never come across 
in all my years, a, a, an attempt to escape from the tower um, that the person was then willing to admit in their will um, that they had they had planned that it was I, I, I had to read it three times just to make sure I was reading it correctly. <laughs> um, he he there's this sense of real cornered panic from him once uh, he is arrested and imprisoned. And it seemed like for a while he was rather optimistic that he would be freed. And then there was this turning point where he realized he wasn't going to leave the the tower alive. What did his wife and children go through after his arrest? And what did he do to protect them? That's something that's a little bit difficult to recover from the sources. I tried to find um, Elizabeth, so uh, his wife, uh, his second wife, Elizabeth Gray, and the children, uh, John, Jerome, and Andrew. Um, I tried really hard to find exactly what they do, where they go. Um, the best I could turn up was um, a, a, a sort of receipt um, between uh, Elizabeth, specifically Elizabeth, um, and a merchant in London with whom the family continued to have ties for, for decades afterwards. Um, so I think she stayed in London. Um, clearly, she didn't stay at their house at Candlewick Street um, because they had inventoried the house and, and sold off many of the goods. So I, I, I can't see that she stayed there. Um, but I'm not precisely sure where she went. Um, but the children were were quite young. John, the eldest, um, was five um, when when his father was arrested either side of. Um, and then the other two sons would have been younger still. So um, it, it was, would have been a lot for her to manage, obviously. Um, but she clearly does quite well. Um, as we know, she she goes on uh, to marry um, the illegitimate uncle of the new king. So she, she manages through it fantastically well. Um, he doesn't do much to protect them, best I can tell. Um, obviously, he makes provision in his will, though there's not much he can will to them because he's been attainted. So, you know, he, he has no rights to his own property or, or to pass it on. Um, John is later restored, um, but at, at the time he writes his will, he has no hope that anything he passes uh, to, to John or Elizabeth will will get to them. Fortunately, um, Elizabeth is, is, is an heiress in her own right, um, so is able to um, pass on eventually some of her own goods and property and, and titles as well. But the fact that he was planning an escape from the tower, to my mind, suggests that he wasn't thinking of them much at all, because of course that wouldn't have ended terribly well for the family. Though she does seem to have been aware of his plan, um, so may have been involved in, in approving of it or planning of it, but um, I wouldn't have thought it would be a welcome thing for her to, in thinking about her future and her children's future. We just so seldom hear about the story, the other side of the story, how these families were affected by the downfall of the head of the household. That to me is such a touching, sad part of the story that of course it's mostly women and children, so we don't get to hear as much about that, do we? Yeah, I worked really, really hard in this to try to recover the stories, the voices, um, the emotions, the, um, the the ups, the downs of uh, particularly the women in the family. Though, as you say, also the children. There, there's. I, I tried to because this is 
intergenerational, multi-generational, um, I tried to find a way of locating the the, the children um, when I could. Um, the you know so so young John has a few moments, um, you know, attempts with young young Henry, um, Henry Dudley later on, to try to give a sense of of um, not just the importance of, of of childhood and you know education and everything else, but this sense of continuance because I think that there can be a tendency to draw firm lines, um, for instance, across reigns or to start the story of a particular individual much later in their life. And so I was trying to show, so for instance, how the fall of Edmund Dudley would have affected the young John. I think that's incredibly important to understanding his choices later. It it could not be. And he reflects on it. We know that he was thinking about it because he writes about it decades later. Um, So we know these things were important to understanding their characters and their choices. And so I tried to pull that out best I could. Sometimes it was speculation. Um, and I, you know, <laughs> in terms of my writing, I, I use all the creative, you know, perhaps is and might ofs and, you know, um, can't have helped but feel a certain way and, you know, things like that to try to mark my speculation while also making it flow narratively. Um, but I was I was really inspired by uh, fiction authors, um, for instance, um, Ken Follett's Pillars of the Earth, when he uh, gives perspective to the, the the characters that are important sort of later in the narrative as children. Um, and I that was very important to me to bring that out. You had mentioned all the things that John had gone through with his father's downfall, and he was eventually sent to live with the Guilfords, right? Yes, yeah, correct, the Guilfords, yeah. Can you explain why that family was chosen and how in the end it benefited John Dudley? The why is is difficult to uncover. I mean, the Guilfords um, were very well favored um, by uh, Henry VIII, uh, they were part of a sort of um, inner coterie to a certain extent, um, not so much as, you know, Brandon or the Howards, for instance, but they, but they were very important. Um, so it was a sign of favor, um, a wardship, um, being awarded a wardship, um, which is what happened with John Dudley, is incredibly lucrative. Um, it's something uh, that people would fight over. Um, so, uh, I mean, by fight, I don't mean (laughs) physically, but (laughs) argue over. Um, and so it, it was, um, a sign of, of, of favor and, and, um, something of great benefit to the Guilfords. Uh, so, you know, just like anything else would be awarded, it would be a combination of, of some favoritism, um, and, uh, a sense that they were due it for whatever reason. Certainly, um, Arthur Plantagenet, um, thought that it ought to be his. <laughs> um, uh, and so when Elizabeth Dudley remarried, um, the illegitimate uncle of the king, um, he, I think, expected that the wardship would go to, to him. Um, and of course, it, it did not. He met his wife in the Guilford household, correct? John Dudley, yes. Yeah. Um, so he married the daughter of the, the person who had been awarded his wardship, um, which was also very common uh, that uh, the ward would then sort of marry in the family to keep that money 
that property, um, any titles that they might carry within the family. And so uh, it was sort of very strategic, um, but at the same time, uh, it seems to have been also based their marriage on um, a mutual respect and, and love. Um, certainly um, Jane um, expresses that in a later letter. Um, and I mean, they do have a fairly impressive number of children. <laughs> so um, there, there does seem to have been some connection between them. <laughs> Maybe just a little. Yeah. <laughs> well, I want to, there's something that I've been wanting to talk with you about, and I'm just going to throw this out there because I thought it was ironic when I was reading your book and I discovered something I hadn't really known before. I've always believed that John Dudley was instrumental in the downfall of Thomas Seymour and his brother, Edward. Mm. But after Somerset was deposed, you know, when Dudley sent him to the tower, John Dudley was part of Edward VI taking on more duties and power, which was something that Thomas Seymour was pushing for. And in the end, it was something that was used against him in the charges. I just find that so ironic. I, do you have any thoughts on that? That's fascinating. Yeah, certainly um, John contrasts with Edward Seymour in that, that John, um, when he, so he doesn't take on, first of all, the, the title of Lord Protector after the fall of Edward, he just becomes Lord President of the Council. Um, and he's very keen to, as you say, give Edward VI more um, involvement and, and ownership um, in, uh, in, in the governance of the realm in preparation for him uh, coming of age, which by that point um, was only uh, a few years away. Um, there doesn't seem to have been uh, any love lost between Thomas Seymour and John <laughs> Dudley. Um, there are reports of them exchanging words. Um, John seems to have been upset um, primarily that uh, Thomas Seymour was given the Lord Admiralty, a position that uh, John had um, taken very seriously, had loved very much and had done a lot of um, work as, as, as Lord Admiral that um, I think he was very concerned about Thomas sort of um, letting unravel um, because he didn't, he didn't seem as dedicated or, or, or keen on the position as John had been. Um, John at this point too, um, particularly seems to have um, not accepted any criticisms of Edward Seymour from Thomas. Um, there's, there's, there's a line in, in um, a report of, of their sort of quarrel where he, he basically says, um, you know, I, I I don't I don't accept your criticisms because he's way more virtuous than you are. Um, uh, you know, it's it's um, he seems very dismissive of of Thomas, um, and I think Thomas um, doesn't have great love for John Dudley either. I mean, as you say, there there are certain things that they um, perhaps did align on. Though there is a difference of time too, when we are thinking about, um, you know, just before Thomas's fall, and then later when when John is introducing Edward VI to more governmental duties. So I, I don't know if they agreed at that point that Edward should be allowed to take Edward VI should be allowed to take more on, um, or that's something that John came to later as Edward was getting older and and was starting to 
not make demands towards that, but we're clearly wanted to take more on. Um, but yeah, it's a really interesting, the three of them really, um, the, the two Seymour brothers and John, it, it's a, there's a really interesting dynamic there um, that I tried to delve into, but I'm sure a more dedicated study could do much more on. When I think about how Thomas Seymour received the title of Lord Admiral, and in plays, John Dudley became Earl of Warwick and a few other titles. <laughs> yeah, I think he's Lord Chamberlain, yeah. Right. It does seem like, in my head, that that was a huge tipping point, maybe, in Dudley's dislike for Thomas Seymour. Like you said, you know, it's always been reported that Thomas wasn't very good at his job and all of these things. But the title of Lord Admiral was a very prestigious and powerful title that I think it's not talked about enough and how they were in charge of the court and, and, you know, they received money and they could do all of these things. And I'm sure that was a little poke at John Dudley to have to hand that over. But I also wonder, did he do it freely? Did he fight it at all? Do we have any evidence that he pushed back on the, the whole idea? I haven't found any evidence of him pushing back um, for instance, against Edward Seymour, who, who presumably was assigning these roles. Um, he obviously, as, as we've said, sort of resented that, that Thomas didn't take full advantage of the role. Um, and, and there is evidence that, that that's certainly the case. Um, I, I suspect it, he, he gave it up with, with some sadness, but with an understanding that he needed a role that wouldn't send him far from the court, um, you know, in, in, in time of conflict, um, which obviously the Lord Admiralty did right. um, various times for him. Um, and again, it, he is following the footsteps of Edward Seymour, who also went from Lord Admiral to Lord Chamberlain. <laughs> um, so, I, you know, I, it was a step up. It was the right sort of step there in terms of the direction towards the court closer to the king. Um, and and I, I he probably was was um, assured <laughs> that Thomas Seymour would would um, carry on his his good work in the position, and then was apparently frustrated that that was not the case. Yes, that was a good point. I always forget that part that the Lord Admiral would be expected to be gone most of the time, so that would be a benefit to have them out of their have him out of their hair. Yeah, probably they probably didn't mind the fact that he might be in Portsmouth every once in a while. <laughs> So, we, you know, we, we've talked so much about John Dudley, and I could, again, talk forever and ask you a gazillion questions about him, but I highly recommend grab her book, Dr. Joanne Paul's book, The House of Dudley, to learn more about the John Dudley aspect of it. And I know everybody's waiting to hear about Robert Dudley, <laughs> so I'm going to have to shift now to the son of John Dudley, Robert, who most of us are going to know as, you know, the eyes of Queen Elizabeth I. With everything that happened with Robert's grandfather and his father, what kind of childhood did he have? There's been a lot of work done to try to recover his childhood, um, including my own. I, I did my best. Um, I think some of it is based, frankly, on on sort of uh, urban myth um, that, that gets repeated. There's this sense that he was part of some sort of um, school of children around Edward VI, um, I found no actual evidence for that. Um, we do know some of his inst instructors um, 
uh, he, he appears to have received instruction, for instance, um, from uh, Roger Ascham, um, from John Dee, um, and from various others. So, so very clearly, um, Protestant-leaning humanists. Um, he seemed to have uh, quite enjoyed uh, mathematics and navigation, based on what's said later in his life. Um, but we don't know that much about his childhood. We, his elder brother, Henry, for instance, who I mentioned earlier, um, we, we have a bit more um, in terms of um, who instructed him and how he was instructed and with whom and so on. Um, we're missing that for Robert. And that makes sense. I mean, one of the things I think we sometimes forget about Robert is he is a younger son, a much younger son, um, quickly doing doing the counting in my head again to make sure I have it, have it right. Um, I, he's fifth. I think he's a fifth son because we've got, let's see, we've got Henry, Thomas, um, John, Ambrose, Robert. Yeah, fifth son um, born. Um, Thomas doesn't make it past um, infancy. Um, so for much of his young life, Robert would have been the fourth son. Um, which is still way down the ladder. Um, so he wasn't terribly important um, to to the family um, in terms of his his standing or um, uh, his education. Um, but he did get one, and he got a very good one. But we we just don't have a lot of information about his very young life. Um, but it isn't until he is a young man that his father falls. Um, so he would have lived his childhood close to the court and in relative uh, wealth and standing. So as the fifth son, he obviously knew in life he would have to fight for everything that he wanted. That's a very good point. I, I think I think so. He probably also knew that he'd have to marry well, which he does, and that he wouldn't be, he certainly, there would be no expectation that he would inherit his father's titles. Um, those would go to uh, an elder brother. And although there would be quite a lot of money coming um, through uh, largely the, the maternal line, his, his grandmother uh, and his, his mother, it's, uh, he, he wouldn't necessarily have, have much of it. So the fact that he marries a, a sort of uh, well-established country gentlewoman who... who um, will likely inherit quite well means that he, he knew his 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 place as it were where he, he knew his path do we know what the first official role was that robert deadly held at the court of queen elizabeth a master of the horse um oh, right. so it, when elizabeth comes to the throne um he's one of the first alongside um, princes of europe to receive um a letter from um well from from elizabeth but really from william cecil um letting him know uh that that uh, elizabeth had had taken the throne and uh, he rides with her in in the coronation ceremony um he arrives at the court very very early on and he's he's master of the horse for for most of of when he's alive in in her reign this allows him to to be very close to her physically yeah and for a first position that's a pretty good one it is. Yeah, it is. It is quite a good one. Um, there's there's some suggestion that other Dudleys uh, held that position 
um, in other reigns. Um, it's difficult to, to pin down. Certainly, um, his father was master of the horse uh, for Anne of Cleves. Um, that's, that's definitely the case. Um, so there was some precedent for it. Um, it is a very important sort of prestigious position because of that um, importance of proximity to a personal monarchy. Um, at the same time, it, you know, it doesn't have the prestige of something like Lord Chamberlain, for instance. Um, so it was a smart, I think, position to put him in. I don't like to ask the what do you think or how did they did, feel? Did they, did they didn't that question? <laughs> right. And I so want to avoid that question, but I know people listening want to know <laughs> what your take. So I'm going to put a little spin on it here. Okay. All right. Do you believe Robert Dudley and Queen Elizabeth I had a secret love child? <laughs> no. <laughs> that, one, that one's easier. Thank you for asking it that way. No, I don't think that they had a secret love child. I think that that would have been impressive. Uh, to pull off, to say the least, um, considering how many eyes were, were trained upon them. I, uh, I, I love that rumor. I think it's super fun. And there are some great websites setting out this, this conspiracy theory, essentially. Um, oh, and there's also the one um, that she was switched for, that she was actually a man. Oh, right. At some point. That's, that's my other favorite <laughs> one. Um, which of course would make it more difficult for them to have a love child. But, right. Um, uh, no, I don't think so. I think that um, there are all sorts of clues that were hungrily picked up upon by observers to suggest that there was something physical going on between them. I think that at, at various points, Elizabeth in particular said and did things that did not really dispel rumors um, that she and Dudley had a physical relationship. Um, she seems at various points to say things that really, really raises an eyebrow. Um, uh, so I, you know, I can't answer the question of whether they, they did have a physical relationship or not. Um, but yeah, I, I really don't think they had a love child. <laughs> So this question is going to be my last one for you, because we've now covered Edmund Dudley, John Dudley, and Robert Dudley. So of the three Dudley men that we have discussed here today, which one did you enjoy researching the most? John, definitely John. Um, it's a great question. I hadn't really thought about it, but immediately uh, to my head was John. Um, and there's a couple of reasons why. Um, one is, is sort of a practical one. Um, very, very difficult to find many sources uh, related to Edmund Dudley. I mean, we're very, very lucky. We have the inventory of Candlewick. We have um, his account books. We have um, the uh, the materials that he produced in the tower, the, the letters of uh, the book that he writes. He writes a book in the tower. Um, you know, we have all of these things. But when it comes to um, very personal letters, for instance, um, there, there isn't much. Um, so it was always a bit of work uh, with Edmund. With Robert, in many ways, we had, we had I had too much, <laughs> way too much. Um, I could have written a three-volume book on 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 Robert. Um, there are things that I barely scratch the surface of, and things that I basically ignore completely because um, it, it's just there's there's too much. And the other thing that makes it it difficult with Robert is it is almost impossible to see through the layers of rumor that are circulating around him all of the time and to pin anything down. And I think 
he did that on purpose. Um, not, not to peeve me off, but um, not, not to annoy later historians. Um, but of course, at the time, I think he was a master of rumor. I think his sister helped him quite a bit in doing that. Uh, and, and essentially in, in, in manipulating people and, and what they thought and always keeping them guessing. And of course, you know, 500 years later, he's, he's still keeping people guessing. So I found, I found that really, really difficult. The great thing about John and and why he was my favorite to work on was um, great amount of sources, particularly ones where he appears at least to really self-reflect and to be very open. Of course, it could all be a charade, but he is at least thinking about things um, very deeply. Um, Everything from the legacy of his father to his sort of philosophy on on court politics you know his children and so I was really able to get a sense of him and he's one that I was really able to take through from a very young child all the way through to his death so I felt a real connection to John um, that I didn't feel with Edmund um, and I didn't I didn't feel with Robert because I I didn't feel close to Robert in the same way. So um, when I, I wrote the, the death scene for, for John, um, I cried um, as, as I wrote it and as I finished it. Um, you know, I think we try to be objective as, as historians, but um, especially when one is writing in this more sort of creative, emotive way, um, I, 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 I guess I got convinced by my own... <laughs> By my own uh, uh, my own writing of it, um, I uh, I was I felt really empty, you know, um, like mm-hmm. finishing a good book um, after uh, I wrote the end of John. Um, absolutely found him found him fascinating. Isn't it funny how when we look at these figures from history, we find something in them that's similar to us, and and we so strongly connect with that. I've felt the same thing um, before with some of Thomas Seymour's characteristics where I thought, I feel like I've known him for so long now and that I've learned so much about him that I feel this deep connection with him that I can totally relate to you saying that you cried when you wrote John Dudley's execution scene because it's almost like a part of you now has died. Absolutely. And and I really felt... It's 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 an odd relationship. Um, it's difficult to characterize. Um, there was a sense in which I felt almost parental. I think because you know I had seen him through his his childhood, his introduction to the court, his marriage, becoming a father. You know, there's a sense in which you are the overseer of 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 all of that, um, and so you can't help but feel connected to them. There's also this sense, um, and I think it's one we as historians have to take very seriously about representing a life, you know, a, a life that that begins, has its ups and downs, its, its, its loves, its losses, and then ends. Um, you know, and we think about it, it, I think it prompts reflection on one's own life um, and how it, you would want it to be represented. Um, I think that there is a burden that we should take very seriously in doing that, in in representing lives. And I don't think there's anything wrong in that being or carrying with it a certain level of emotion. We have just scratched the surface when it comes to what's all covered in your book today. 
And if you're listening and you are upset because I forgot to ask a specific question, I highly encourage you to go out and purchase Dr. Joanne Paul's book, The House of Dudley. Joanne, where can I find your book? Yeah, it's uh, released in the UK. And if you live internationally, um, like many of my friends and family do, you can order it um, from Waterstones and Blackwells and other UK uh, book retailers. I think particularly, I don't know if I should should plug a particular one, but I don't think Blackwell's charges for international delivery. So I'll just say that in a, in a hushed <laughs> hushed voice. Um, but you, you can order it um, even if you are abroad. Um, and if you're local to the UK, I would highly encourage you to purchase um, from your local independent bookstore. And I've purchased through Blackwell's before. I do recommend them too. So we don't have to whisper about it. Okay. <laughs> Don't want to get anyone in any trouble. No, no, no. Dr. Joanne Paul, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you so much. It's such a joy to be able to talk about this. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty. Thank you so much for listening. A special thank you to my newest patrons, Louise D., Stephanie D., Ashley R., Taylor H., and Maureen G. If you love the show and would like to show your support, please head over to Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Tudor's Dynasty. And click Become a Patron to see options. I've got all kinds of fun freebies for patrons only, so what are you waiting for? Head on over. Up next on Ask the Expert, Steph chats with Dr. Catherine French on domesticity and consumption in London after the plague.